Good morning. It is a, a great joy and a, an honor to again stand before you and open up his word to behold our holy God, to behold the Lamb of God, to behold the shepherd once again uh, this morning as we look at the book of Isaiah. If you'll remember, it was about a month ago, I think, we started, I, I started sharing from Isaiah. I started with chapter 1. I then moved to uh, chapter 42, and I, I commented how much I had skipped and how much we probably missed. However, chapter 1 did set the stage for the book of Isaiah, and I just want to share quickly here as we go through um, Sorry, uh, a little bit of the where I'm going with this. I, I want to cover again quickly the context of Isaiah this morning as we come again and 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 look at behold the servant who demands our attention. Uh, I'll, we'll review a little bit of the first song, and then we'll jump into the second song. But my primary end goal is to get to the New Testament application of these first two servant songs probably especially this second service servant song because of the words that are repeated so often in the New Testament. So the question and answer time may be when I finish up this sermon. Uh, we're not sure. This is a, a little bit aggressive uh, to try to get through all of this. But remembering back to Isaiah, just real quickly, the book of Isaiah is large uh, with a large vision, right? A big vision of renewal, massive scale, recreation, full redemption. It's a huge sweep of time, very expansive, just like the God who is at the center of all of that. And following along this narrative of Isaiah, we are looking for how will God provide? How will God bring a solution to the destruction that we see to his own people? And how will God step in, most importantly, I'm going to mention this several times here this morning. Most importantly, how will he step in and cleanse the red and crimson-stained hands of his people? If you remember, chapter 1 was setting the stage for really the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, full of indictment, full of condemnation, full of judgment because of their sin. God's people were ruined in their sin, and their only hope for Israel was to come to God himself. And God gave that answer later on, especially in the second part of the book, with this message of hope and comfort through, in fact, the servant. So the Holy One of Israel will bring justice as a compassionate Redeemer. And the question that we talked about in that first um, yeah, sorry, that's not clicking forward. There we go. In, in this first uh, servant song is, how trustworthy is Yahweh? Is Yahweh, in fact, still for us? Will Yahweh still accomplish his purpose? And we ask those same questions. We ask these questions when we're in trials. We ask those questions when we're in the middle of suffering, difficulties, loss. Is Yahweh still trustworthy? Can I trust him? And 
Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, they had a problem with trust. They went to the other nations, and they found their hope in other places. Uh, just this week, in fact, I was reading through my own time, reading through Lamentations, and the book ends like this, and this really is the question of the day in Isaiah of, of covenant people coming to God and wondering what He's going to do. The, the Lamentations ends with chapter 5, starting verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? And then the call of the remnant is, restore to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Restore us to yourself, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless, this is the last sentence of this book, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. It's the end of that book. This is, of course, the remnant from the exile speaking, and that's the question, is Yahweh still for us? That's the context of the first part of, of Isaiah, and as I shared last time, that the main idea is that we will only find our hope in God who is, through His servant, provides forgiveness redemption, and in the end, we'll make every wrong right. Yahweh will accomplish all of this through His trustworthy servant. We also shared the first song, Isaiah 42, talked about His commission, His mission, His manner, His perseverance. He is empowered. He, is, he cannot fail because He's empowered by God. Every power will one day submit to him. He comes with patience and with meekness, and nothing deters him, even though he's bruised, of course, prophetic of that cross and his uh, crucifixion, that he will be bruised, but it will not deter him from completing the mission that God has given him. So in the second half of Isaiah, we see this dominant theme of comfort, of hope, and of restoration, but it follows after these 39 chapters of indictments, judgment, coming destruction. And there is no watering down bad news in the book of Isaiah. It would be a, a false diagnosis met with a false cure if he watered down the bad news. Our prognosis, just like Isaiah chapter 1, is that without Christ, we are eternally separated from a holy God because of our sin. This is no flesh wound, right? No quick fix, no band-aid approach. And even like the world often will say, oh, Christianity, religion is just a crutch. We don't need just a crutch. We need a stretcher because we're dead in our sins. Not a crutch, not a band-aid. So, Isaiah, condemnation leads to hope, judgment leads to restoration. It's the, the two-sided uh, part that we see really all through Scripture is law and gospel. Law has to be there in order for us to understand our position before a holy God, our prognosis, and then God opens up our eyes for the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that God Himself put on flesh in order to fulfill the demands of the law perfectly, and then took on the punishment, the condemnation of a sin law breaker, 
even though he knew no sin. He then absorbed that wrath on our behalf and raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Uh, The gospel is not just God loves you. Right? We have to define that. What does that love actually look like? It looks like him taking on flesh, God himself coming, living perfectly, dying the death that we deserved, and taking on the wrath of God that we also deserved. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And Isaiah very similarly sets up devastation, condemnation, and then he presents this suffering servant. And we want to, I want to look at the, another song here with you in Isaiah 49 this morning. Uh, before we do that, let's pray and ask for God to open up our eyes so that we can behold this servant. Father, I thank you for this new day that you've given us. I thank you for the honor to share your word. I pray, God, that we come to you here this morning by faith alone, which is, of course, also supplied by you as a gift and that your Holy Spirit would change us as we once again behold, as we once again look at the suffering servant. Lord, do your work in us here this morning. Help us to see your glorious redemption, your glorious promise of a Redeemer that we see through this servant, of course, know to be Jesus and even a hope that we have before us because of his completed work on the cross, because of our atonement that he completed. Lord, help us again open our eyes, these eyes of faith that we have, so that we worship you, glorify you, and are changed in every aspect of our outlook of who we are in Christ. Lord, we need you to do that by your grace and by your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I forgot to advance those, sorry. So this morning, before we look at Isaiah 49, I just want to give a little bit of context to this second song, because what happened after the first song? What is God speaking about between uh, chapters 43, really, and 48, uh, especially in chapters 45? through 48. God is revealing himself again as their one true God. He's reminding them that they are chosen. But then he includes this prophecy beginning in chapter 44, even, and especially in in chapter 45, about someone that he's going to raise up And that person is called Cyrus. He is the great founder of the Persian Empire. This would be 539 to 530 BC. God will raise up and use Cyrus as his chosen servant. Cyrus will be divinely empowered to crush Babylon. He will be successful for the sake of Israel. And under his rule, we know that the Jews were allowed to return to Israel after those 70 years of captivity. And these are just some of the words that Isaiah, speaking for God here, talks about Cyrus and how he will be used as God's instrument. This is chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. Just a couple of phrases. He is the anointed one whose right hand I, God, will take hold of. 
in order to subdue nations before him, I will, be go, I will go before you, I will call you by name, I name you, and I equip you. Those are some of the repeated phrases in chapter 45. And then he says several times in chapter 45, you, Cyrus, do not know me. In fact, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. In Isaiah 44, 28, he also says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. So following after the first song, he is now coming into this prophecy, which is 150 years before Cyrus was even born. The prophet here calls him by name. He gives details of Cyrus's purpose for the Jews. God says of Cyrus, your mission is to free God's people and to bring judgment to the nations. Uh, And this is a physical bringing his people back out of exile. So there is a limit to this chosen servant, but it's important for God to reposition his people back out of Babylon. This would be Cyrus's mission, Cyrus's purpose to crush Babylon. It's interesting today, we often think that we need political reformation, uh, we need cultural revival, uh, we need better laws, right? We need just and right policies, when in fact what we need is redemption, when in fact what we need is salvation. We don't need a Cyrus, we need the servant Jesus to set us free from our sin and our slavery to sin. We come by faith to the finished work of the servant, not looking for a Cyrus to bring political reformation or to set us physically free, to set up a better place, society, culture to live in. We need redemption. Go right back to Isaiah chapter 1. We need redemption because we also have sin stained, dripping hands before a holy God. As he gets to chapter 49, the second song, he will contrast this servant with his servant Cyrus. Let me read chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the the preserved of, of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation 
may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. At the very outset, it's interesting to notice a difference here in the format of this song. It kind of flows as a conversation, but what's interesting to note is the first song and the fourth song, Isaiah 53, God is the one doing the speaking. Here, it's the servant speaking. He's speaking himself in the second, for himself in the second song and also in the third. He demands our attention himself. He speaks, he is called and equipped, he is rejected, but he is successful, he is despised, yet he is exalted. The servant demands our attention. And as we look at this song, we'll go briefly through this, we will see in verse 1 that he is intimately chosen. He is divinely empowered in verses 2 and, two and 3. And then in the ending, uh, verses 4 through 7, he is gloriously successful. This is the servant that we saw in the first song, adding now some more information to his mission, his choosing, and his success. So first of all, he is intimately chosen. We see this in verse 1. And there's a connection here, of course, in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. If you remember, at the end of chapter 42, this was the same phrase uh, for the coastlands to hear as they were waiting expectedly for his law and for his justice. So he continues here, he connects this all the way back to Isaiah 42, and he says, listen to me. This is the servant speaking, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people's from afar. He is demanding a worldwide hearing. And Isaiah uses this phrase, listen, very often here from chapter 40, chapter 41 on. He says five times, listen to me in silence. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded. Hear this, O Jacob, and listen to me. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. This is similar to what we're going to see here in the second psalm, similar to the contrast that we saw in the first psalm. If you remember, the, the repeated word there was behold. Behold the servant. Why did he say that? Because earlier on he talked about be, beholding, do not behold the idols that they were worshiping, that they were making out of their own hands. So there was that contrast between the servant, behold him, and the idols. And here, pay attention, listen. The contrast now is to Cyrus, who was also chosen. He was appointed. He was an instrument to set you free, to allow you to return from exile, to restore God's people in God's place, and then also to judge and punish the nations. But again, this was a physical crushing of armies, a physical releasing of prisoners. But there's more to announce than just that Yahweh would redeem Israel from captivity 
in a physical sense. There is more to announce, and it's going to take a different servant, one who is intimately chosen. He says here, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He named me. He assigned my name. He made my name known. He made my name to be remembered. More intimate than the naming of Cyrus. This is a divine calling, a divine naming in an intimate, intimate way. Of course, in the Near East, uh, naming of children uh, represented authority of the parent over their child. Parents would, of course, give them their names, usually attaching strong uh, meaning and, and definition to those names. Parents have this God-given authority over the child. Uh, today, wow, we're seeing that go right out the window because you can't even tell me what gender I am. Never mind, give me my name, right? That's the freedoms that people are demanding, Reversing the authority of this uh, structure that God has set forth in naming that comes from parents. But here the servant belongs to God. He's called by God. He's named by God. Therefore, he's trustworthy. And he is intimately chosen. He doesn't just mention a name, Cyrus, but he assigns this name to his servant, causing it to be memorable. You made my name to be known. These are notions that would assure God's people that this name is great, this servant is great. He is not a fraud. He did not push himself into the scene so that he would become great. He is great from the beginning. The servant here is acting, of course, on his behalf under God's direction and authority. He is intimately chosen. Trust me. Listen to me. Give attention to me. The servant himself is speaking these words to us. We go on in verse 2 and verse 3. He is perfectly or divinely empowered. Earlier chapters, of course, Cyrus is chosen. He's called to liberate Israel with the sword, with might, with physical power. Yahweh's true servant is so much more than that. Remember, Israel's indictment was sin, idolatry. Uh, judgment would come through Assyria and Babylon, overtaking them, sending them into exile and captivity. They needed not just physical setting free. They needed cleansing. They needed forgiveness. And Cyrus was only used to return them of course, not to redeem them, not to cleanse them. So the confidence of the first song we saw continues again here in the confidence. As he speaks again in verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And then in Hebrew, parallelism, he, he made me a polished arrow, just like he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in his quiver, he hid me away. Cyrus's victories would come by the sword. The servant would secure victory by his word. Piercing, incisive words would cut like a sword. Words of judgment, but also words of life. His is an office of the word. His task is a declaration of the truth. And his word is 
the gospel, the good news. He didn't just come to declare the good news, in fact. He came to be the good news. He is the treasure. He is the gospel. Hidden with God, drawn out at the right time here, the shadow of his hand. In the quiver, he hid me away. Jesus didn't come just like we we saw in the first song. He didn't come and just destroy everybody and break down and crush all enemies. He came with meekness. He came with patience. He came with mercy. And Peter tells us he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days, in the last times, for the sake of you. For the sake of you and me, the Gentiles, that we would come in to his church. He is intimately chosen. He's divinely empowered. Trust me, listen to me, give attention to me. And then he is gloriously successful. Within this narrative of God's redemption, again, there's many moments of doubt, right? And as we read the narrative of of Scripture, we always are asking, how is God going to make all this right? I see these heroes that we call, but they're bumbling heroes, right? They fail. They fall. They do the wrong things. They try to live out their own promises. And then today, as we look at the chaos spinning out of control, what is God doing? It seems like nothing is very successful, And here the servant speaks again. He says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity in verse 4. It seems like there's no success. It doesn't appear to be very successful. Then he goes on to say, yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with God. This is very much set up like a lament structure, stating facts, but then there's a critical pivot. He is despised, will be despised, will be rejected, will be ignored, and it all seems like it's in vain. Isaiah, of course, will build on this in the, in the, second, uh, the, the next two songs in Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, but just like in the first song, he will not faint, he will not be crushed, Surely, he says, my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Justice due him will come from God. His reward will come and it will be through suffering. It will be through rejection, but he will be exalted. Kings will bow down. Princes will prostrate before him. This servant, this suffering servant, suffering is the means of his success. Rejection is a part of his victory. And of course, the song goes on to talk about his victory, including in verse 6, as we already read, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He will be successful. No failure, only perfect fulfillment in this plan of redemption. The people may despise him, but God will honor him. Intimately chosen, divinely empowered, and gloriously successful. 
there's a lot more we could cover in the second song, but I want to jump to something that's very interesting, and that is how do we apply this, coming at this from the New Testament, how do we see this text, in fact, the, the whole of the songs in the New Testament, so that we can understand how this applies even to us. The longer we serve, the longer we live for the Lord, the more we realize that suffering plays a very key role for all of us in our sanctification, in our standing for Him, in our initiatives to spread the gospel and to make disciples. The landscape right now, uh, in the times that we live, it is hard to think that the church won't soon be facing some very hard days. Pursuing Pursuing the fame of Christ will invariably come at a cost. Living for Christ, serving Christ. The question that we would come to this text, at least this is how I would come at this text, is how do we do hard things for the gospel? Why will we do hard things for the gospel? How will we endure as a people with a mission? How do we raise up others, in fact, who will be ready to endure? How do we train up the next generation the Lord tarries, so that they will advance the gospel. All of us are in like this relay race, and we all have to pass on a baton. But what is it that we're going to pass on? And how will we pass that on? We're always handing off something. But what is it that we're handing off? And how are we, in fact, passing that off to the next person? to the next generation. It may be that whatever we're passing off has nothing to do with Christ. It may be that the the way that we are passing it off is far from the mission and the task that we have been given. It may not be preparing others to endure. It may have nothing to do with instilling love and devotion that endures suffering. It may have nothing to do with sharing the worth and the value of Christ that gives us enduring hope as we go through difficult days. Do we think about this? Do we think about this with our children in our church? How are we passing this on, and what is it, in fact, that we're passing on? And how do we come at this with a framework flowing out of the servant theology? For life, for serving, for making disciples, and for spreading the gospel. The mission of the servant, the manner of the servant, and the success of the servant. This is the framework that we see. In fact, I just want to share some different passages through Luke and Acts. These are Luke's two books that he wrote, just two volumes of Luke. It is fascinating to come to Luke and Acts, and start to read it over and over, and we start to see this servant theology come out of his books. And it really shows that this is the relationship that Luke had with the Old Testament texts, with the message of Isaiah, and in fact, in particular, the servant songs. It framed up, in fact, his understanding and how he applied the servant theology. 
there is a great relationship as we see this and connect it back to the Old Testament. Many reference points to Isaiah, to the Messiah, to suffering servant in this suffering in this servant theology. I'll just read a few passages here. Luke chapter 2, he starts it off right in the beginning. As Jesus is presented at the temple, brought to Simeon, we read Simeon saying these words, applying this to, of course, Jesus, that he is a light. This is Luke 2. The passage is 28 to 35. We don't have time to read all of it. But in Luke 2, 28 to 35, he says that just Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Right out of the text of Isaiah, Luke here is applying Isaiah, the Messiah, the servant to Jesus, and he's showing that through these words of Simeon. In fact, that behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He goes on in a couple chapters later in Luke 4. This is 4, 18 through 21. Jesus is in Nazareth. He's on the Sabbath, and he stands up in the synagogue, and he reads from what? The book of Isaiah. Luke 4, 18 to 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, a recovering of sight to the blind. These are motifs of Isaiah. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke applies the servant of Isaiah to Jesus. But he also goes through and describes Jesus' ministry through the gospel of Luke, Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the disciples with this framework of the servant theology. The disciples imitate Jesus' ministry when he sends out the 12, Luke 9, when he sends out the 72 later on in Luke 10 and uh, throughout that chapter. The disciples experience rejection in the same way as Jesus. And in Luke, uh, as well in Acts, Luke shows how the disciples themselves take on various roles of the servant. The disciples declare the gospel message. They suffer unjustly, and they see Gentiles repent and receive the Spirit, just like it's talked about in the servant songs. Even, this is very interesting, those who reject the, this message of the kingdom, both Jesus and Paul quote Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. This is in Luke 10, 16, and then also in Acts 28, verses 26 and 27. Both Jesus and Paul, when they see people who reject the message, they quote Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. The heart of the people is dull, ears are heavy, eyes are blind, they keep on hearing, but they do not understand. They keep on seeing, but they do not perceive. As Luke, Luke's narrative builds through the book of Acts, talking about church growth, the church expanding, the gospel spreading, we see these same motifs of, of the servant theology tying back to the songs of the servant. First of all, in Acts 13. This is in Antioch of Pisidia. After preaching Christ, followed by these converts, as well as growing opposition from the Jews, Acts 13, 
46 and 48. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning now to the Gentiles. For the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the second song, the second servant song from Isaiah 49. Paul is applying this to himself. He says, for so the Lord has commanded us, Paul and Barnabas, giving us the same mission. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul does this again later on in Acts 26, 15, and 18. Uh, This is him giving his testimony after meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus. He says in 26.18 that this was the mission, the task that the Lord Jesus gave him that day on the road. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He took the mission of the servant and placed it on himself. Well, the Lord placed it on him. And he saw that being applied to his own ministry, his own life. Even back, if we go back to Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, Christ himself tells Ananias to go to Paul. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name, Acts 9, 15, and 16. Paul, as well as Barnabas, took on the role of the servant, the mission of the servant, and the means of the servant to carry the message forward. Paul's motivation, his tenacity, his endurance is driven by, shaped by servant theology. Mission means Success by Christ, for Christ, through Christ. Luke acts these two books together as Luke wrote them. There are strong lines of continuity that go back to Isaiah from the servant fulfilled in Christ to the apostles and then to the church. The mission and the means to carry on this mission. The means, they're chosen, called, empowered, to proclaim, but also to suffer. But there are also some clear lines of discontinuity, and this is important for us to see. The mission of the servant versus the mission that he gives us, and the nature of his suffering and the nature of our suffering. And we can't mix this up. The parallel looks like this. At the end of Luke, very interesting, and the end of Acts, there are two long journeys. In Luke, it's Christ's long journey to Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, it's Paul's long journey to Rome. Parallels that Luke sets up in both of his books at the end of these books is that they both also speak to their disciples, giving them parting words, a charge, a final charge. Of course, Jesus does that with his disciples. Paul does it with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. So both have this long journey, 
This is Luke and Acts, the ending of those, both of those books written by Luke. They both have this long journey. They both speak to their disciples. They both give this final charge. They're passing on the baton, so to speak. They both stand trial four times. Both Jesus and Paul at the end of Luke and the end of Acts. They both, both, all these, these trials for both of them start with the Sanhedrin and they work their way up. Talk about intentionality. Luke really does write two volumes. And it has continuity, but also discontinuity. Jesus' journey ends with death on the cross and resurrection. Atonement completed, right? This is the discontinuity. Paul's journey, as Luke writes it, he does not write about Paul's death. The ending of Acts, Paul's journey ends with Paul alive, preaching the gospel. Listen to the way that this comes to a close here for Acts. This is Acts 28, 25 through 31. They departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah, the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For the people's hearts grow, have grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. In their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And turn, and I would heal them. In verse 28, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke does not narrate Paul's death to show that the nature of Jesus' suffering is complete, it's perfect, it's once-for-all atonement, but the nature of Paul's and the apostles and the church and ours, that suffering is not for atonement, but is one for declaration, proclamation of the one who suffered and died and rose again. And he shows Paul ending in his second volume to his work, preaching the gospel, alive, preaching continually about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was intimately chosen. He was divinely empowered. And he, like all of us, will be gloriously successful because it's Christ's success. So we are also, by grace, in Christ, chosen, intimately, divinely empowered, and we see glorious success and victory. We are purchased for a purpose, given a mission to declare, to make these disciples, and it will be victorious in Christ, for Christ. His suffering purchased us, our redemption, as our propitiation, our suffering prepares us for the weight of glory that awaits us. But our suffering follows after this pattern of the servant. It's to be expected. We take on the mission of the servant. We also take on the means of the servant. And Luke shows us this framework 
of the servant affected, how it affected the disciples, how it prepared them to, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what. They were called, they were purposed, and they had this means to declare, to engage, to expect suffering because they knew success had already been purchased by Christ. How will we endure as a people with a mission? How do we raise up others so that they're ready to face whatever it is that the Lord has for us coming? How do we train up the next generation to continue bringing the gospel forward, to continue standing on the authority of God's word, no matter what? with convictions that are grounded and rooted in the truth of God's Word, not in the relative, uh, relativism in this culture of going along with everything else because we're nice people. We're called. We've been given a mission. And He has shown us the means of that. And it does come by suffering. That is the framework of the New Testament. That is the framework of the Apostles. That is the framework of his disciples. I believe it's the framework of the church. From the servant songs, the framework of being chosen, having a mission, and having the means set before us that we will suffer, we will stand in opposition, all of that will come. What are we passing on? As we read Luke and Acts, this is how the Holy Spirit shaped the reader or the writer of Luke, and that's how it should shape us as readers of God's Word. Called, chosen, given a mission, empowered to carry out that mission, and sustained to endure the suffering. Peter certainly had a grasp of this, written in the midst of growing persecution writes his first letter, how, do you, how are you going to live? How are you going to endure? How are you going to stand up? Not escape. How are you going to escape the suffering? Peter does not give that advice. It's all about endurance. It's all about how you're going to sustain this. And he says in chapter 2, 1 Peter, verses, well, verse, just verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's no period there. We could revel right there. There is no period there. He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is not written to a bunch of comfortable Christians. This is written to a church who are being persecuted and that persecution was growing. He doesn't write this to a, a nice, fancy, comfortable group of people. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been given a mission. We've been intimately chosen. We've been given this mission. We're divinely empowered because it's by Christ, through Christ, it's for Christ. And we see glorious victory and success because of Christ. He is our living hope. Behold 
the servant. Listen to me, says the servant. We're chosen for a purpose to proclaim His excellencies. And before this world, we will be called to stand for Christ. To demonstrate, to declare that He is our treasure. Christ is the gospel. He is the treasure. How are we passing that on? How are we preparing others for that very thing, for that very day when we will be called out for our faith? How are we preparing? I pray that the servant theology that we see in Isaiah, as we see in these servant songs, would impress on us by God's power, would be impressed on us that we would have the same framework as a church. The framework of chosen, given a mission, divinely empowered, already shown the victory of Christ. May that be for the glory of God, for the glory of Christ's name, to a dark world, to the ends of the earth, as we stand as light, no matter what we may face. Father, we need you. We come to you beholding you, the servant, Jesus, because you are the answer, you are our hope. You're the one who empowers us. You're the one who redeemed us, cleaned us up, forgave us, gave us new hearts, We are now new creations, and it's all for the sake that we would proclaim your excellencies to the dark world around us, to the ends of the earth, to the nations. Lord, may you be glorified through us. May you do your work in us so that we would have this framework of a people with a mission empowered by you with the hope of victory that awaits us as we are your servants your slaves set apart for this work of glorifying you, the one who has brought us out of darkness into light. Lord, do your work in us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.